wonderful day, full of knowledge. Project A Podcast. My name is Pablo Del Vecchio. Um, I have more than uh, 30 years of experience almost in, in tech. I have been coding since I was nine years old uh, on a Commodore VIC-20. I don't know if you know what this is, but it's an old computer. I'm currently CTO in Barcelona. That's where my family is, so it's my hometown now. I was also previously CTO at Corner Job. I was tech lead at Shipstead, that is a big media group from Scandinavia. And I was CTO at Project A Ventures two years, from 2012 to 2014. It was a great time uh, here. As you can see, what I say I can deploy while DJing is because we used to do parties at the rooftop of Project A, and I was occasionally deploying while putting some music. So, yeah, it worked. Okay, a little bit about my current employer. Hosco is a triple digit growth year company. It's a, a meta vertical for jobs in hospitality. So we have a community of around half a million hospitality members across the globe. Uh, this is my really first global uh, project. Uh, most of the projects that I have been working before were local, so you can only operate uh, locally in countries or you, you need to have several locations of offices in order to operate uh, in more countries, but this is actually global. So the hospitality uh, talent, they move across the globe and they look for searching uh, for job opportunities uh, across the countries and across regions. So we have a small tech team. We are 15 now, uh, located in Barcelona. Some of them, they work remotely from France. Uh, we have 12 full-stack web developers. We code in several languages, JavaScript, PHP, Node.js, Python, and Golang. I will explain a little bit why we do this. It sounds like crazy, but it's not that crazy. And every developer has DevOps skills and operates their own code in production. This is kind of the Netflix mantra, you build it, you run it, right? And uh, we also have a mobile and we have an automated QA person, um, platform. So this is the current tech stack. Well, it's, it's not exactly like this anymore. So we replaced Rancher with EKS in Amazon. And we are also in the middle of my migration between AngularJS and, and React. Everything else is more or less uh, like that. So I was about to, some, sometimes I do demos about the infrastructure that we, that we have. I don't have enough time to, to go through it, but at least I will try to explain how we reached uh, the current status, okay? So um, long time ago, most of us developers, we start creating uh, software as monolith. Uh, everybody's uh, familiar with the concept of a monolith. A monolith, monolith application is the one that you deploy all together. Okay, the, let's call it simple like that. And then with a single database, uh, usually relational. And this was my situation when I was here in, in Project A. I was actually building monoliths and deploying them with a single database. And it, it made perfect sense uh, at the time. Um, so we construct the use cases bottom-up. We define it well, the data model, uh, with all the entities and attributes, and we think about the, all the use cases that could come up into the minds of the product people. And then if we find an ISORM, we just uh, deploy the database, and then we start building the code from there. 
everything works fine until we need to scale it. Yeah? Then we use the usual stuff, vertical first, horizontal second, or vice versa, depending on the uh, platform that you're working with. But this is not enough, especially when the request per minute increases about the survival threshold. Uh, this is a concept that we have that, that depends on the language that you use. Uh, Stephanie was mentioning that uh, probably they work with some Java applications, okay? The, the survival threshold there is kind of high because the response time of a Java application is, is lower. But if you are working with PHP, you start having some issues of the response times, you can reach 100 milliseconds really easy, and then you start to see that even if you scale vertical or, or horizontally, it, it doesn't uh, change. And um, yeah, sometimes we add a cache layer that allows read operations to be faster, right? And that's, that's fine, but then you start experiencing some kind of read after write operations uh, issues, right? And when you write, you want to read immediately. And if you have a cache layer, the data is not available immediately. So this is what Hosco looked like, um, like one and a half years ago, a year ago when I started. Uh, we had a, like a single instance in a provider that it wasn't not even a cloud provider. Uh, we just uh, had some Redis and some MySQL databases mixed with Postgres, and the infrastructure was very uh, uh, poor, let's say. But then on a, on a short term, what I usually do with a, with a company, so on previous jobs, we, I've managed to reach a stable situation uh, after, after some months or maybe a year. This uh, original situation was kind of more complex. And if you start experiencing downtimes, bugs, impossible deadlines because the platform is on fire, and you need to start fixing the first, the, the, the first things. So uh, this is a high-level overview of how the infrastructure uh, looks like. Right now, we did a lot of work, a lot of automation needs to be put in place. So we had, uh, we had Cloudflare before, but then we also combined this with Cloud from, for Amazon Web Services. We added load balancers everywhere. We have uh, facades or let's call it ingress Kubernetes um, uh, ways to enter the, the platform. Then we have the Kubernetes cluster. We have the main monolith dockerized properly and deployed. Uh, and uh, this made uh, a lot of sense. And the, the downtimes kind of disappeared. Um, yeah, we added kind of a different databases for different purposes. We added Couchbase that was not before, wasn't there before. We removed Redis and uh, replaced that with also some Couchbase functionalities. And, I, and as I mentioned, Rancher uh, is out of the scope right now. So this looks. Okay, uh, uh, if you happen to have a, a, an infrastructure like this, and uh, there was someone mentioning on a previous talk that uh, at the end infrastructure, it doesn't matter. Uh, these are musts, uh, and then you can have different ways of creating software uh, that will also stop you from scaling properly. So as I mentioned, yeah, the response time for PHP was okay-ish, and the status page that we created, all the services were up and running. We didn't have any downtimes. Everybody was kind of happy, but from the product and tech point of view, that is uh, because we act as a single organization, iteration uh, started to become an issue. 
So um, this is a tech maturity model that I have been presenting for the last uh, maybe three or four years. And it, doesn't, it didn't change uh, a lot. So what we think is that, uh, yeah, we invested a lot of automation right now. So we started from a very low automated system and very coupled. So we have a monolith. So a monolith is like a big ball of mud. Everything is coupled together. You touch one part and it breaks on the other side. We imagine that if we start now uh, investing on decoupling, the system, maybe the iterations would actually allow us to do uh, most fa more faster iterations and uh, the ability to do experimentation. So most of the companies I start on, the, this is first, second, third, fourth quadrant. Most companies start here, or at least in my experience, all the startups that I've been. And then slowly you need to move into the second quadrant. Um, when people talk about decoupling, they also mention microservices. Uh, yeah, when we when we did the presentation three years ago with uh, Stefan uh, with Project A, um, microservices was something that people started to, to look into, but it's, it was kind of risky, right? But what, what was happening at that time is, is that most people, they started to decouple without taking into account that automation is the key and monitoring is, is the key for actually doing that decoupling properly, okay? So we learned, before uh, from other lessons that you need to invest a lot of time in automation and monitoring and then you start to decouple. If you do it vice versa, you will create chaos and at the end you will say, okay, now we have a microservice architecture but I don't know what to do because I have no control of what's going on. Then uh, it comes an enumerated architect that says, uh, now that the platform is stable, for scaling maybe we can build a distributed system. Okay, how many of you are working with distributed systems now? So slowly people are exploring the possibility of using a distributed system to, to scale. But is, what is actually a distributed system is, it's about the distributed data, right? Data does not live in a single persistent layer, but in many, you just don't have one database, you have many databases. Data that belongs to a single entity is partitioned, a user, that has some data related to user behavior, could store the data in a place, and then the data related to the registration or the payment information can live in some other place, right? This, this generates complexity in the system, but it's a way to actually, uh, and I will mention how we end up talking about domains, it's a way to actually uh, Splitting the entity is a, it's a, a technique that allows the data to live in the right domain. Let's call it like this. And data moves across the system, so it's replicated. So we have to start talking about data flows. And data is eventually consistent, right? Not, not all the data is the same in the system. When there is a change, the propagation takes time and eventually all the data will be the same everywhere, but it could take some milliseconds to, to reach that point. Okay, then why, why and how a distributed system helps over scaling? Yeah, so first it allows commands and queries to be divided, right? When you execute a read request over a, a data set, it's not the same as writing the data, right? On a distributed system, you can actually have this uh, split into different layers. 
and asynchronous communications are now a reality, right? Uh, you don't, if you write into a place and you read from another place, then you don't need to wait for an asynchronous response from the data layer saying the data is available and then you can have it. You can actually uh, create data and read it um, sometime after without waiting and creating this also coupling. Second, it allows the code to be divided. Yeah? This opens a door to multiple technologies to coexist. That's why when we mention uh, that a distributed system create, and I mentioned all the languages that we are working with, it's because we actually have a distributed system that I can actually put pieces of code into different places to solve different problems. And third, uh, when my code is, and data is divided, then the, then the construction of the use cases of the entities can be done top-down. So we mentioned that we did uh, create systems bottom-up. So we did design the database, and from there we created the code. Now that is the code and the data is distributed, we can actually look at the different places where the data is stored. Let's call it domains or bounded context, and we'll explain this a little bit more later. And then you can design the code and an application for each domain without having to decide, okay, this database, this user will behave like that, and all the use cases needed will be in a single point. So there are some uh, namings for these architectural styles uh, that involve decoupling. Uh, one way of decoupling is, of course, microservices. Who is doing microservices here? More, more people than, than distributed system. It's because uh, it's easier to create microservices and use a single database. Yeah? That, that is called a distributed monolith. And most people, uh, when they start decoupling the microservices, they don't have uh, another technique that I will explain that is domain-driven design to allow data to be split, divided uh, by domains. So uh, decoupling increases the frequency of atomic deliveries, right? Uh, it's not the same if I need to deploy a complete monolith and execute all the tests and see that nothing breaks, that to decouple, to decouple and deploy a small microservices or maybe of uh, 200 lines of code that I can test that have maybe uh, code coverage of 100%. And it's easier for me to do iterations over that. Uh, I can minimize the impact, so if, if something breaks, uh, the system continues to work. This unlocks experimentation. Yeah? Maybe uh, I have a microservice that is taking care of uh, search and matching, and I want to test some other technologies. Maybe I want to include a GraphQL uh, interface or a graphical database uh, to, to make some, some queries over that. And uh, decoupling is basic for domain-driven design approach. I will explain a little bit more about this. Uh, so there are two types of domain-driven design uh, approaches. One is more tactical, it's called tactical, and another one is called strategical. The tactical one, it's, uh, you can see that happening when you do hexagonal architecture. Who knows what is hexagonal architecture? So um, hexagonal architecture is a way of layer your, um, your uh, applications to create domains inside the application. And you can also send events across domains. But you do it, you can do this on the monolith. Um, event sourcing, who, who knows what is event sourcing? Yeah. So event sourcing is a way of 
you can see the, the final version of an entity based on all the events that created the entity. So uh, we, as humans, we are created about uh, using all the events in our past, right? You can th think in this analogy. And the decoupling is the, one of the building blocks of domain-driven design. So um, a lot of people, when they, when they first find out that they can actually decouple uh, the monolith, they, they enter this decoupled madness, right? Everything should be removed from the monolith and the monolith is evil, which is not true. And nowadays, what is very common to, to have a monolith coexisting with microservices. And uh, some people use what is called the strangle pattern with uh, the monolith. You actually try to kill it, but at the end, it will, you will never kill it because it has some, maybe some good things from uh, the, a legacy platform that are still doing well, and we don't need to actually experiment over that. Um, and when we move, uh, when we decouple uh, and we use this kind of microservices, the communications between the microservices starts to become uh, an issue, right? And uh, we actually move the complexity to, to the network. But the complexity never disappears, it's just uh, different. Um, you have these distributed system fallacies. Uh, I will not go through, through them. You can search for that. Um, but as you move uh, things uh, to the network, latency starts to become a, an issue. And the way that communications between systems works can couple and you can create dependencies that maybe there were not there in the monolith, but you create new dependencies in, in the layer, in the network layer. Okay, DDD is a set of guiding principles, actually. Um, it tells you to focus on the core domain. Um, most companies, they uh, try to solve all the problems that they reach without actually looking at what is the core domain that needs to be solved. For example, if a startup needs a messaging system, do we need to build a messaging system or we can use another system that is a third party provider that actually can solve this issue? For example, for uh, chat systems like Signal, I will not mention WhatsApp because I don't use WhatsApp, neither Instagram, neither Facebook, so I use Signal. So if Signal, uh, the core focus and the core domain for Signal is actually messaging, so it doesn't make any sense that they use an external system, right? But if you are building an e-commerce and the messaging is just a chat that you use for customer service, yeah, maybe you can just incorporate Sendesk and that will solve the problem, right? It's important that we find uh, what is the core domain. And on e-commerce, maybe the core domain is based on the checkout uh, page, right? And everything that happens on the checkout or how you arrive to the checkout and the conversion in the checkout and the payment and the fraud those are co-domains for, for an e-commerce. So um, we need to explore models in a creative collaboration of domain and software practitioners. So this, this is not just tech. This is product, tech, growth, uh, marketing. All of them together, uh, we need to explore different models. Um, and these models will end up living in a particular domain. And speak as a, speak 
uh, ubiquitous language within the explicit bounded context. So an ubiquitous language means this, you speak the same language. In the checkout and in the payment, you have a specific language that will only apply to that. And if you go to the fraud part or even the delivery part, uh, you will start to speak some other languages. And this is how you actually partition it in the system. So uh, we build software in a way that allows each problem to have the best solution possible. Uh, because we don't need to build a system that does everything right. We build a system of loosely coupled components that each one solves a specific problem. The components interaction can happen in synchronous or asynchronous mode. And we can do tactic DDD, and this is what I mentioned before, a strategic DDD, and we use thinking to group these components. Um, an application usually have a, a model, right? And the main model, uh, it's, a, it's a, in layered architecture, it's a, a model that can be actually isolated. Model has entities and value objects, right? We still have entities. We didn't went away from, if you want to represent this on a table on our relational database or a NoSQL, that's fine, uh, but the entities will not disappear and they will have attributes, but you, actually group them in a way that you can actually isolate the way they talk. Entities represent types of things seen in the domains. Right? We will have users, we will have payments, we will have deliveries, we will have visits. These kind of entities will continue to exist. And in Hosco language, we, we call them member, company, school, job. Yeah? And some of them have representation on, on tables, actually. Yeah, when I mentioned uh, the bounded context, uh, context is a defined part of the software where particular terms, definitions, and rules apply consistently. This is, this is super important, that uh, whenever you design a model, it behaves the same in the context. A developer must be able to easily know if they are inside or outside the boundary, and team responsible for the bounded context must agree on design, architecture, and process. The big ball of mud is there is no context. Everything is together, right? Incomprehensive interdependency, inconsistent definitions, incomplete desk coverage, and risky to change. So I'm not saying that monoliths are, are bad. Yeah? This is always that something I repeat every time. I'm just saying that it has some drawbacks and draw, uh, it pushes us back to be able to scale properly the business. Okay, these are bounded context examples. You can search for more information on over the internet. There is a lot of documentation and it, it's just start uh, using some of the definitions to try to group things in the, in the same, under the same umbrella. Some of the domains that we have at Hosco, uh, the identity domain, so the, the member entity has a big part of, of behavior inside this domain. Uh, the localization, so we localize and geolocalize the members and the jobs and we can actually do matching between them uh, so, can, uh, so we can show jobs closer. The messaging domain involves the members, so the members in the Hosco platform, they, be, they perform a social interaction uh, activities, so they send messages, they do likes, uh, etc. Matching, so matching is one of the core domains uh, at Hosco. So we know 
how to put the best job uh, possible to a member and present the best members to a position. And we have some other domains like the external domain. We have external companies that we do integrations and we do crawling and we incorporate their jobs into our platform. And the taxonomy is also a core domain for us. So taxonomy is everything. When you do classification, the taxonomy is just a fancy name of that, right? A job can have a specific um, requirements, a member can have specific skills, a company has some other attributes that makes the, the taxonomy and the language that you use inside the company. And an entity can be represented as the sum of the data contained on each domain. So we can actually split a user, for example, on the actions that they perform into different domains and we connect them using a unique identifier. Um, now that the microservices trend is commonly embraced, it's easy to say, yeah, we are doing microservices. But five years ago, it was a kind of risky decision, right? Uh, who knows who is Robert C. Martin, Uncle Bob? Yeah. Um, so this single responsibility principle, uh, which states, uh, gather together those things that change for the same reason and separate those things that change for different reasons. This is actually why um, domain-driven design is so powerful, because you actually group things that make sense. There are two uh, communication patterns on microservices that I want to talk about. One is the orchestrator. You have a single central system that is calling each microservices and probably waiting for the response. So it's a synchronous request, a remote procedure call, RPC, that blocks, right? Um, most of the startups, they start building the, on, with this pattern. Uh, it's fine, but then when one of the server gets blocked and you have, are, are asking for a synchronous request, the, call, the complete system gets blocked and it's actually, um, uh, you create more coupling than you had even before. The choreography, uh, each service is, uh, knows where to listen and what to do without asking a central system. There will be a central uh, message uh, stream, let's say, that is actually sending events through the system. I, I will go into details later. Um, but uh, on a choreography, no one tells you what to do. You just know how to dance, right? Um, this is done because there is no single uh, orchestration done and telling you exactly what to do. And I will explain how we reach it choreography uh, on a more clear way. And also you can have, of course, event sourcing, right? It's an architectural pattern in which we state uh, the state of the application is determined by the sequence of events. This is why I, what I explained earlier. The main component of an event-based system is a stream pipeline. We need events and stream of data to be able to do choreography. If not, you cannot actually reach this. As, at Costco, we call this component Ranel. Yeah, that's just a fancy name for a river, I think. And we build this with Elixir. Who knows what Elixir is? Do you use this in production? We have Elixir running in production and it works pretty well. Um, this component has some basic responsibilities, okay? We validate the event schema. I will talk about the activity stream 2.0 data format that we use. We first persist the event timestamp in, micro in microseconds for future ordering, and then we generate the UUID. But it's important that we first store this on the data lake. 
some, uh, and I think I've heard uh, this presentation before, some people actually put the message into the event stream that it could be Kinesis or Kafka, and then they persisted into the latter lake. We do it and vice versa. We persist the event and then we send it to the pipeline. This is done for a reason because events uh, deliverability are best efforts. Sometimes events can get lost. But if you persist them on the data lake first, if you have an issue with the pipeline, you can actually replay the events and you will not lose any information. And then we just return the UUID for future follow-up. Okay? So on the Renel overview, we have the router that we receive the request. It's just a microservice that receives the, the request. And I will talk about the format later. We persist this on the data lake. The data lake for us is Amazon S3. Um, we use S3 because it scales really well. It's also based on DynamoDB. We don't do queries directly over S3, but for a data lake, it's a, it's a common use. Then we use Lambda functions to pipe this create event into the Kinesis pipeline. We choose in Kinesis because Kafka is a, has an operational hassle. It's a really hard to operate in the production. Who, who uses Kafka here? Have you tried Kinesis? It's a much simpler solution and it could, could solve uh, some, some issues. Uh, yeah, just if you want to give it a try, when you're tired about Kafka, you can take a look. And then from the pipeline, we have a lot of different Lambda functions that consume the event and pipe them to some other microservices. So why not a message queue? Uh, a message queue, and I've seen a presentation before, it's a good uh, also choice. Uh, but for us, uh, because we were used to work with Kafka, it made sense to, to go for stream again. Yeah. Uh, a message in the queue lives there until it's removed by the consumer. On the streams, the message lives between 24 and 72 hours. And uh, you cannot delete the message from the Kinesis um, stream. Um, you can configure this. Uh, during that time, you can uh, every single Lambda function that connects to, that listens to the streams, they can consume these uh, events. They can start from the beginning, they can start from the end, but you cannot modify the data that is stored there. Once, once it's there, it has a specific order per, per shard, but you cannot delete it. And th this is good because for us, uh, if something is not working properly, we can actually stop the consumers uh, on the Lambda functions and fix the issue and start from a given point that we select. A uh, consumer can remove the message from the queue. The message can be, cannot be removed manually. This is already mentioned. We need a combination of notifications and queues for all to be able to listen. If you actually want to notify everybody that you have a new message on the queue, you need to use a notification system. It's not automatically. On the streams, all consumers can subscribe and listen to the messages until they disappear. So they react to the messages, but they, need, they don't need to ask, is there any message? Is there any message? We just, they're listening. Um, and from my experience, sometimes queues can get full. So RabbitMQ, I've seen RabbitMQ failing several times uh, um, because we don't consume the events, the messages properly. 
on the streams they, they actually never get full and uh, with the auto scaling capabilities that Amazon has you can actually fill by, by messages for 24 hours and it will just delete in the other ones without us needing to interact. <coughs> Sorry. So we pipe events from S3 to Kinesis using Amazon Lambda functions. Amazon are, uh, Lambda functions are small pieces of code that can react to triggers. Triggers can be on a persistent layer like, like S3 or in Kinesis, on queues also. Uh, once the event is on Kinesis, some other Lambda functions can listen to events and can call some other microservices to continue with the process. And sometimes we need to search on the, if we need to search on the events, then we use some other persistent layers to do this. A combination of Couchbase, of Elasticsearch. Now you can actually index data from S3 to Elasticsearch using also Lambda functions. There are several ways to, to do this. And um, we have different type of messages that we put into the pipeline. Uh, we have internal uh, events, things that happen inside the system, and the actor is the, a microservice. I will talk about actors uh, later. Uh, external events, things that happen outside the system, and the actor is another system. And user behavior events, things that happen on the client side, web or mobile. And the actor is usually a human. So these user behavior events are the same events that is, are sent to analytics, right? But the, the advantage of this is that you can actually configure the events and have the event as close as possible to the data layer. So you can actually use these events on real time. For analytics, you need a batch process that gets information. And, and we are around uh, 1,000 requests per minute events, and it's growing. Uh, we reach at peaks of 2,000, 3,000, because Kinesis can handle this, then there is no issue. Uh, if we use our relational database to store them, we ho would have reached like 500 million rows uh, really easy. So uh, that it's hard to scale even for Postgres. Um, so the event first gets persisted in S3, and then the event, uh, but the event is just a log entry at the moment, right? It's just persisted there and nothing happens. But we can use the events as commands. And uh, the way that we do this is by uh, adopting a W3C uh, recommendation that is Activity Streams 2.0. If you want to look for those, that is a really nice JSON format that has an object and uh, an actor. And uh, um, it can be used to actually propagate the data on a structured way. So these are some of the examples of the events that we have in the, in the in Hosco. So we have the app open event or app viewed event. These are events that uh, are coming from the apps. We have the company created event, company updated, company qualified. At, at the end is always the entity plus the, a verb in the past because uh, uh, events are actions in the past. They are immutable. So when something happened, it, happen, you can change it. And, um, uh, and this is how it looks like uh, from a context point of view. Uh, this is just a, an entry specifying that is activity streams. Then we have the actor and the object. The actor is who is performing the, the who performed the activity and the object can contain the entity. We actually put the entity there. For future, so we uh, will try to do event storming. Event storming is a technique that is being developed by Alberto Brandolini, he's an Italian DDD enthusiast. Uh, you can actually gather together with the complete company and you 
generate a stream of events uh, on paper based on everything that happens in the company. And, and then with this, you can actually refactor a lot of the process internally, and at the end, the systems will reflect the, the state machines that you have on, on your company. So I recommend uh, for you to take a look into this. That will provide you a lot of more insights. And this is what we have uh, as a data flow. We have the batch processing and the stream processing. Uh, so the, this is a typical Lambda way of processing data. With events, you can actually have the stream processing on real time. So you can actually access the data uh, more easily. And wrapping up, uh, so monoliths first are good, uh, but monoliths only can become a bottleneck. Uh, distributed systems are hard at the beginning, but uh, they pay off at the long run. Data team will enjoy having events in real time over the data warehouse. This is the data team is always super happy when we do this kind of things. Uh, you can go asynchronous whenever possible. These avoid uh, dependencies. So you send a message, but you don't wait for the result to be there. The tech maturity model that I explained works for long-term results, also in product and tech. If, you, if your organization, product and tech, is, asking, is working really uh, together, uh, decoupling increases the speed of iterations and brings stacks diversity. Automation and monitoring gives more control over the platform, less errors, and it's more scalable. So these two concepts uh, can be used in any, in any model. Uh, and it will allow you to, to uh, mature your, your platform. Do it yourself can give you a lot of insights. Um, I, so some, some people uh, are not super happy with this concept uh, of do it yourself because it takes time, but sometimes it's the only way to actually learn how the company is working. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not that you need to use external uh, solutions for everything. When you actually create an event pipeline, for example, you will learn wh what is happening in action. And uh, if we can spot the first principles behind the theory, so deconstruct and reconstruct. So when we deconstruct, when we decouple sometimes, and we, we find out that actually grouping things together makes much more sense. Right? But we, first, you need to split in order to regroup re uh, later. Uh, and breaking down the problem, in, uh, we can find smaller, smaller solutions for smaller problems, but maybe sometimes it's better solutions. And uh, after doing all this, we can suggest better uh, changes to the business process. And that's it. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Until next time.